Hello team and welcome back to the Simply Fit Podcast. Today I bring you some incredible news. I have been working on a secret project for the past three or four months now and I now can tell you that the brand new follow along workout channel is live and here. On this YouTube channel you're going to find workouts for fat loss, muscle building, improving your cardio health, flexibility, everything is going to be on there. You're going to find body weight workouts, dumbbell workouts, kettlebell and resistance bands workouts all that you can follow along with and the best part is that it's completely free they're also around 10 to 20 minutes long meaning if you're short of time you can quickly complete an effective workout or you can combine like two or three of them together and complete like a full 45 to 60 minute workout new workouts will go live on the channel every tuesday and thursday and they're going to be accompanied by an amazing backdrop which i'm sure you're all going to enjoy so if you want to find the channel just search elliot hasoon into youtube and you'll find it very easily and please subscribe it makes me very, very happy and it helps the channel grow. And feel free to tell your friends, your family, your pets, whoever you want to share this with and let's work out together. Hello team and welcome to episode 277 of the Simply Fit podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Anthony Walsh. Anthony is an online cycling coach and host of the incredibly popular Roadman Cycling podcast, where he looks to answer the question, how do we use cycling as a tool for our health, happiness, and longevity? Anthony's story has had some pretty crazy twists and turns, including a career as a professional cyclist, a period of working 70 hours a week on many businesses and neglecting his health, to eventually finding his true passion and pursuing it relentlessly. Anthony has a mindset unlike many, and this episode is without a doubt worth a listen. In this episode, you can expect to learn how Anthony turned his life around after realizing he was on the wrong path, where to start with cycling, and if you can truly still become great even if you start late, along with Anthony's thoughts on society becoming soft. So without further ado, Anthony Walsh. Welcome to the show. How are you today? Good. How are you? I'm excited to be on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm very well, thank you. And I'm really looking forward to speaking with you. We just had a little chat off air and I am yeah, very, very looking forward to not just diving into the cycling aspect of things, but getting into the insights of your mind as well. So with that being said, for those who may have not come across you or the work that you do before, can you explain a little bit about yourself, who you are and what it is that you do? Tough question. Big one to open. Uh, I, I suppose it's definitely um, difficult to put me into one box. And this is, I suppose, much to the frustration sometimes of my girlfriend at times where it's like you go to the wedding and people want a one word answer. Oh, what do you do? I'm a dentist. What do you do? I'm at insert this. I went through university uh, and became a lawyer qualified as a barrister, uh, or as we call them in Ireland, barrister. You might call it a lawyer if you're in the, the UK. I started working. So I was one week into that after qualifying for seven years and spending a lot of money as you can imagine on law school and decided to sack that off to take a contract for a professional cycling team in France getting paid 200 euro a month out there like accommodation covered but like 50 euro a week pretty grim difficult conditions it's where you do your apprenticeship if you're a cyclist to get to the top tier so you can think about this like for a soccer analogy it'd be like fourth division and it's where you go when you're starting out to kind of earn your stripes do the apprenticeship the French call it le métier this idea of working your way up so I spent a few years bouncing around different levels in pro cycling came home to Dublin and I had decided that pro cycling wasn't for me I'd had a lot of injuries but I had found something I loved I loved cycling I loved the freedom it gave me I loved the friendships I loved the, the just raw exploration I felt like as a kid again when I was on the bike so I wanted to keep cycling as like a common strand in my life so I decided okay 
I'm going to be an entrepreneur and that'll give me time to cycle. Because if I go back to law, you know, 60, 70 hours a week, I'm never going to have time to cycle. So over the course of like four years, like I built a, a cycling coaching app, done a big fundraising round in Silicon Valley for this, uh, built an event pre-registration platform, set up a social media marketing agency, uh, set up a cafe in Dublin, set up a coaching company with 20 full-time staff coaching thousands of athletes. And I just had a creeping sort of descent towards unhappiness to the point that one day I just woke up and I was like, you know, I'm just not as happy as I used to be. Like my baseline happiness just isn't as high. Like I've more money than I've ever had. Like not difficult considering I was making 50 quid a week, but I have disposable income for the first time in my life. But I'm like, I'm just not happy and I can't put my finger on it. And I have a friend who kind of has mentored me through business stuff and he's built some huge businesses like and taken them public. And I was talking to him one day and he's like, just burn it all down and start again. I was like, what? And he's like, well, like, if you don't like where you are, start again. And since that, like, this is a real stoic philosophy now, this idea of start again, and we can get into that in a little bit. It's something I love at the moment. Like, if you're not happy where you are, start again. And I was like, what? This is wild. Because I had some of the trappings of what people externally would view as successful. You know, I was starting to make some cash, like a nice watch, I could afford a nice car. And I went to his house and I came out that evening and I'd got rid of all my businesses, everything closed down, sold the cafe, sold the social media marketing agency, wrapped up the coaching company, exited out of the app, everything in one day, burnt it down. So I woke up the next day and I had nothing to do. And I, so I went away to Bali and I went surfing and I traveled for like 18 months and I literally just said, okay, what's next? And I started with a blank page and I kind of started from a place of, okay, what would I do if money was no object? What would I do if I couldn't fail? What would I do if, you know, this was page one of my book and I'm the hero in this story and I get to write this amazing book, inspirational book, what would I do? And I've always loved storytelling. And that's where I started. I wanted to tell stories, but I wanted to be surrounded by people that uplifted me and inspired me. And it initially wasn't a podcast. I didn't have a concept for a podcast. I just kind of had that guiding principle. And it turned out to be a podcast and, you know, 520 episodes deep now on the Roadman Cycling Podcast. And just at the point where it's actually, you know, a full-time job and it's a, it's a living now, we're starting to work with amazing sponsors and, uh, you know, kind of, it's still humbling to me that people tune in and listen to the podcast. It's still a weird, it's still a weird existence, but yet that is a real job these days, apparently. Yeah, apparently so. And a lot of us are proving that. And it's impressive that that's the step you took. And do you ever get insights into the old life that you used to have? Because obviously you took on podcasting and you've took, taken on coaching as well, if I'm not mistaken. And they're not necessarily always as a life as an entrepreneur, there's going to be those challenges as well. And I can imagine you're probably similar level of workload, perhaps. Maybe I'm wrong in saying this, but it's going to be a lot of intense work to create your own business, sustain your podcast, etc. And is that ever slipping in that past sense of I'm feeling unhappy or is it just all happiness since you chose the right projects to work with? Yeah, I definitely have days where I'm like, this is hard. Like I've got busy days. Like at the moment we touched on the start, my mom hasn't been too well and she's been in hospital and you know, the challenge with being an entrepreneur is there's no days off. There's no calling in sick to say, Hey, I can't make it today. It, the work needs to get done. So when you throw something extra in like hospital visits and picking up some slack and being the man around the house at home, you know, there's extra stuff in your day and it pushes you to the point of breaking point. 
but I love it. Like, and I wouldn't change it because I get to, you know, chat with my idols, guys I grew up watching on TV. I get to chat with them and become friends with them and build these amazing relationships and talk about cycling. And, you know, getting the chance to explore amazing places. Like I was over in Iceland racing two weeks ago and like racing through volcanic ash and through glaciers. And I never would have got a chance to do that. So there is times where I think, okay, I went into law for a reason. I love the idea of advocating and giving a voice to somebody who doesn't have an ability to stand up for themselves or speak for themselves. It's like the idea of, I'm not sure your dynamic at school, but there's always the kids who got picked on in school. And I always like to kind of, you know, advocate or stand up for the kids who got picked on. It turned out I was quite good at sport in school and sport was like almost a currency in the working class school that I went to. So I had a little bit of street cred in the school because I was the best soccer player. And so it was nice to like stand up and advocate for someone who maybe didn't have a voice or a means to do that themselves. And law for me was the expression of that. And at times I wish I was still able to do that, but it does come at a cost at too big of an opportunity cost. It's like 60, 70 hours a week pursuing just financial gain, really. And for me, if I look at my life, you know, there's four or five different areas in my life that I value. Like I value family. I value, yes, financial is important to me. Spirituality is important to me. Sports important to me. Self-progress is important to me. Uh, relationship with my girlfriend is important to me. So I have five or six areas. And then I look at my weekly available time. You know, I've got 70 awaking hours, maybe. Like if I spend 90% of those 70 hours just chasing financial, it doesn't leave me a lot of space to be a good family person, to spend time with my girlfriend, to work on my own spirituality, to, you know, look after and fill my own cup in terms of self-progress. So it, it's just, it doesn't make sense and it doesn't line up in the sort of current paradigm that society's built. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And it sounds like you've got your core values in place. And I'm always a big advocate of saying that values don't necessarily make the decisions easy, but they make the path very clear in terms of how you want to spend your time, how you want to distribute your energy. And ultimately, once you determine what they are, it's just a case of making sure you're saying yes and no to the right things rather than getting caught up in things like, you know, prioritizing the financial over family, for example. And I think it's, uh, it's quite a balance to be completely honest. But once you get those values set in place, it does tend to take care of itself, I would say. Would you say that's been your experience as well? Yeah, that's a nice expression. I like that. I haven't heard that one before. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. It makes stuff like I could be offered a job for, you know, I won't be, but I could be offered a job for seven, 800,000 a year next year. But if somebody says it's 70 hours a week, it doesn't become a discussion because it's just like, it just doesn't fit. It's not like a, oh, can I make this fit? Like it doesn't fit. Like there's, there's no possible way that fits. But it's also like, what does your vision look like for your perfect life? And trying to move towards that. And my vision for a perfect life doesn't involve sitting in a 200,000 euro car in traffic to go into an office to solve someone else's problems, to come home in traffic and have my residual energy spent with the people I love. I want to spend the bulk of my energy with the people I love, not my residual energy. So cycling, it's something that is pretty damn time consuming as well. So you mentioned you were racing in Iceland a couple of weeks ago. How are you factoring that in with the intense demand that that takes on your time as well? Yeah, so I've, cycling has been of a complicated lifelong dynamic with the bike. It's <laughs> It's been so many different things to me at different points in my life. Like most people cycled growing up at some point. And for me, it was like, you know, when you're a kid and like the, the end of the street 
was some sort of magical boundary fence we had where my parents would be like, oh, he can't go past the end of the street, but somehow you got a bike and now it's acceptable to go past the end of the street. So it was, you know, early days cycling was the ability for me to go to the town over and to have kind of, you know, summer long romances that you wouldn't have had if you were uh, otherwise confined by foot. (laughs) And then through college, it just became this amazing, like kind of reprieve for a window, which I could kind of abscond from my studies and responsibilities when everyone else was stuck in traffic. I was kind of just slaloming through traffic and it was just such a relaxing, meditative way to commute in and out to college. And it went from a two hour bus ride to a 25, 30 minute cycle. And that was one of my first kind of serious introduction to it. And then it was like a tool for me to earn a living and see the world. And I've had to refine my relationship with the bike. Although I've always cycled, I've drifted a little bit like without purpose on the bike at times. And I was using it maybe just as a social tool to catch up with friends and go for a coffee. But in the last few months, I've kind of re-found the high performance end of cycling where I'm back kind of looking at events and I'm back maybe training roughly 20 hours a week on the bike at the moment. And I've kind of had to reimagine how I structure that because I can't get out in the morning for a four hour spin like I used to when I was a pro cyclist. So I have to, for example, this morning I rode for 90 minutes. I woke up, recorded a podcast, rode for 90 minutes, came home, had some lunch, caught up on some work emails. We'll do this podcast. We'll ride for 90 minutes again after this interview and then into the hospital to see my mom this evening and then come home and record a, my podcast for tomorrow <laughs> later on tonight. So it's, it's a, ends up being a full day, but you can kind of, like if someone asks me, like, have you seen the latest show on Netflix? I'm like, I'll stop you there. Like I haven't. Like I haven't seen what's on Amazon Prime, Netflix, Apple TV. I don't know any of these shows. I just don't have time for it, but I wouldn't change that. Like I like to socialize my friends on the bike and it's kind of my way of, you know, filling my social cup and exercising at the same time. And then for my more sort of purposeful, intense type sessions, I will do them at home on an indoor bike and they'll be a little bit more structured and they aren't as social and they're more difficult to do in traffic as well. So it's the indoor bike suits better for that. And it's a little bit tidier uh, in terms of like for cycling, depending on the weather, it can take you like 15, 20 minutes to get kitted up and get ready. And then the same to kind of get kitted down and ready. But the indoor bike, it's just like throw on a pair of shorts and you're good to go. Yeah, absolutely. And what are your long-term ambitions with cycling now that you've re-entered the arena from a performance perspective? So I'm going to try and gravel is is an area in cycling that has kind of exploded in the last two to three years. And it's really driving the cycling industry. And it's an alternate uh, to the traditional pathway of the only destination in cycling was World Tour Cycling. That's like Premier League of Cycling. And that's on the road. And that's the races you know, the Tour de France, the Giro d'Italia. Most people know these races, but gravel is a different type of race. So it's, there's a high performance end to it. Guys at the front, they're racing. But there's also, uh, like I went to Iceland last week and I, or two weeks ago, and I had a problem with my bike, which I was at the, in the front of the race, had a problem with my bike, got stuck in one gear for the rest of the day. And then the race changes and it becomes a participatory type race where it's more about, they say, the spirit of gravel, where it's more, it's more about getting through and the journey and the stories you tell and the adventures. So if that same mechanical problem happened in a road race, it's like pack up and go home. But if the same problem happens in a gravel race, there's so many people, like there's 800 participants in this race and they're all at varying levels. So it's like, find your group, have some fun, you know, stop midway through instead of having a, a can of Coke to recharge, maybe have a beer to recharge. And it, it becomes a totally different experience. So it's 
something I'm really interested to explore. So I'm going to race the end of, sorry, start of September. I'm racing in Badlands in Spain. So it's like a 750 kilometer race across Europe's only desert. So I think last year's winning time was like 59 hours. So that's going to be a exercise and sleep deprivation, which I haven't experienced before. So it's going to, it's just stacking these new experiences. Does anyone ever say that you're like a young rich role? That's what you remind me of. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what, rich role is someone who's been super, uh, like I, I don't actually listen to his podcast that much, but he's someone who's influenced me quite a lot. I went to see Rich Roll speaking in, well, I had a Canadian girlfriend like back when I was in college and I went, visited her in the summer and Rich Roll was speaking about a vegan lifestyle. And I was like climbing the ladder and cycling and I was looking for any little area to sort of where I could niche out a little bit of extra performance. And he was talking about the anti-inflammatory benefits of a vegan lifestyle. So I actually changed to vegan lifestyle on rest days and I don't know, difficult to say if I got any performance gain out of it, but it was my first introduction to Rich Roll and I followed him after that. I find it was interesting to do it. Yeah, I listen to his audiobook and I go in and out of this podcast, to be completely honest. There's times where I'm like, yeah, I'm really, really into his podcast. And there's other times where I park his podcast for months on end. But like you said, he's a very, very interesting individual. He's got some obviously very concrete beliefs on the vegan lifestyle and everything along those lines. So sometimes you have to take those with a pinch of salt. But at the same time, yeah, I, it does. There is some com- comparative type of ideas there, especially when it comes to the obs- kind of, oh, and I want to use this word kindly, actually, the obsessive nature behind what you do. I noticed that he's high energy, he's high sprung, he's got a lot of different projects, but he's also grounded in reality at the same time. And I'm curious to understand a little bit more about yourself as well, because if, it doesn't sound like you do things in halves. So you don't set up a cafe, a business, you know, well, several businesses, and then go all in on a podcast and, you know, try to hit the heights of professional cycling, you know, all in one. Well, most people don't anyway. So I'm curious to see where that will become kind of that obsessive personality in regards to things that you genuinely enjoy such as the cycling but also things that it sounds like you don't enjoy too much in you know the law side of things the entrepreneurial journey at times so where does that come from and how do you manage it these days i think i try make decisions i for better or worse uh, a lot of people kind of maybe drift at points in their life and they're like oh i'm not really sure how i got there i just kind of drifted down this path so i was always conscious when i just i've been fascinated with people's behavior and i remember taking a psychology course years ago in university and i was just fascinated by human behavior and i always observed that people like oh i don't really know how i got here like i'm 50 i'm in this job i'm in this house and I never really chose that. And that always scared the shit out of me. And I was like, okay, I'm never going to not consciously choose my own path. So I've always tried to make hard decisions and audit at points in my life. And, you know, the calendar year is an obvious one or your birthday is another obvious one where you go, okay, am I in a place where I like my life? Am I moving towards something? You know, actually it was funny that we talked about Rich Roll. I did listen to his podcast for the first time. Uh, I put a sauna into my apartment. And so I've been playing around listening to a little bit more podcasts in the sauna in the evenings. And I listened to Rich Roll last week and he had this idea of people have a vision that they're going to be surrounded by their loved ones in their old age. And, you know, as you you know come towards your twilight years, you're going to be surrounded by kids and grandkids in this loving environment. But they never reverse engineer that to think, okay, well, I'm 50 years old now and I have no relationship with my son. I don't have any grandkids and I have no circle of friends. Like where's this magical grouping and coming together of people when you're 80 going to happen from? So I've always been good on reverse engineering stuff and going, okay, well, what's the destination look like? And then auditing my behavior and go, okay, well, if that's the destination, are my current habits aligned to get me there? And I think so much of that comes from cycling. We're so performance and goal orientated in cycling that at the start of the season as a 
you know, aspiring pro, I would have said, okay, I want to get a podium in the national championships and that's in June. Okay. So if I want to do that in June, where does my fitness need to be in May? You know, I'm not going to be, you know, not finishing races in May and then suddenly come out of woodwork and get a podium in the national championships in June. So I need to be getting top 10 in regional races in May. And then you take that back to April and go, okay, well, if I'm going to get top 10 in regional races in May, well, where do I need to be in April? And if you keep reverse engineering that all the way back, you go, well, what do I need to do like today? What do I need to do like right now? What needs to happen in this next 60 seconds to start calibrating me? And in that way, you can set up like a domino chain reaction where I only have to do the next thing and keep doing the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And it should take you to your ultimate goal. So I've always tried to do that in, you know, professional, personal, even relationships and say, okay, is this all, is there alignment here? Yeah, it's an interesting way in which you break down those things that sometimes can't be quantified. Like I've spoken to my therapist in the past and he's like, you can't think about a return on investment with the time that you spend with your friends. I'm like, well, you know, like if I'm investing in these two hours, what, you know, what, what exchange am I getting back from this? And he's always, you know, keen to explore that idea, but also challenge me on, on doing that. But it's interesting you've been able to apply kind of a more analytical mindset to all of those different type of areas and to break down, okay, well, how do I need to be distributing my time? And I guess it comes back to values. And like you said, the domino effect as well. And I heard you mention a domino when it comes to your podcast and the purpose you've got now, which is helping people improve their health happiness and longevity through cycling. So how does one do that? Well, so I kind of had this idea that this the, the stoic term of health is the invisible crown we wear on our foreheads, but only sick people can see health. So I have friends who are legitimate billionaires. They've taken companies public. They've built some of the biggest companies in the world. And I have friends who are unemployed. And so I have friends on this wide spectrum. And again, back to observing human behavior, I've seen almost no correlation between income and happiness. So I was like, okay, so like everyone is maybe chasing this mirage in the distance that I'll be happy when I make six figures. I'll be happy when I make 10K a month, 20K a month. And it just becomes this moving goalpost. And I was like observing my friends and people that, you know, they're 10 years ahead of me, 20 years ahead of me, 40 years ahead of me. The people that are super happy are the people that are very healthy, regardless of income status. So I was like, okay, well, health is the domino here. It's not wealth, it's health. And like I have friends who are 82 years old and they ride with me on a Saturday and we'll ride like a hundred mile on a Saturday, 82 year old. And he'll be unbelievable. Like if you look at this guy from the waist down, he's where he's 16. Like his legs are tanned, (laughs) they are shaved. And we're sprinting into the coffee shop and it's like the 82 year old at the front. And I'm like, this is amazing. It's inspirational. And he's the happiest guy you've ever seen. Like I look at my dad, he's like not 70 yet. And like he struggles with mobility to like, you know, walk for 10 minutes. And I look at this guy, 82, and I'm like, okay, well, there's something in this. So the podcast really became my personal quest for you know, the answers to how do we improve health, happiness, and longevity. So, you know, there's a long tradition of from all the way down from Roman times where I'm actually just, it's not me that has all the answers. I'm trying to bring together the experts that do have the answers. And somebody might have an answer that's quite instructive on strength and conditioning, or maybe I bring in four different strength and conditioning experts and the audience get to say, okay, like here's some merit in person A, person B, and person C, and now they form their own hypothesis about strength and conditioning. But there's not that many aspects if we deconstruct what health is, there's not that many aspects, whether we choose cycling, running, weightlifting, CrossFit, whatever 
that modality is. Like we have stuff that we'll universally agree is important and then stuff we'll say, okay, maybe just you might add extra significance to some aspects than I will, but most reasonable health practitioners will agree nutrition is important. Some aspect of strength training is important. Sleep is important. Mindset is important. Endurance training is important. And then it's like, okay, well, how do we, and I would say stress reduction is important. You know, maybe that's one of the ones we would slightly, some people would debate on it. With stress reduction, I'll put in stuff like meditation, sauna, journal work, therapy work, uh, reading, self-reflective time, uh, even red light therapy, which I'm finding brilliant at the moment, like photobiomodulation. I'm not sure if you've played around with that much. But if we take those five or six different elements, like for me, that goes to making up health. So the podcast is really conversations around those five, six areas. And I think there's a body of knowledge there that if somebody listens to the podcast, they don't need to pay these really expensive consultants to get health. Because for a long time, we've seen health guarded by the you know superstar athletes hollywood elite and then it's trickled down and by the time it gets down to you know my friend that drinks in the pub on a saturday night and he thinks fish and chips is healthy because you know chips are potatoes and fish is in the sea so that must be healthy but there's been a disconnect there for so long and health is broken down across socioeconomic lines and you look at obesity levels across you know working class areas and they're a lot higher than in affluent areas so it's just trying to break that paradigm and give almost democratize health and how we create and sustain health. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting when you do look at it from that perspective. And obviously part of it's education, but then there's an economical factor to it as well. And that's one of the big things that drove my podcast as well is that, of course, we both, you know, have offerings of coaching as well. And there's only going to be a certain amount of people who can reach that. Whereas so the podcast, the amount of information that's available, not just on yours, but there's several, you know, many, many podcasts out there that you can gather a lot of information from. It does make it a little bit more accessible. And as you've mentioned, it's been guarded for so long, but now it's starting to trickle down to the masses, which I think is an amazing job. And on the note of that, and whilst we're still on the topic of cycling, I want to talk about how someone who's maybe piqued their interest and maybe wants to get started, where do they start with that? And also, another personal question as well. If you are to start late in life, is there any chance that you're going to be able to perform at a high level or is it something that you have to get into quite early, which seems to be the case with a lot of sports? So yeah, getting started, take the first question first, uh, getting started super easy now. When I got started in cycling, it was... It was like Tyler Durden Fight Club where you'd gather in behind a bar late at night and nobody really knew. It's like, no, don't tell anybody about this. The first seven rules are don't talk about it. But it's super available now, you know, depending on what part of the world you're listening to this podcast. But in the Western world, you're going to have group rides most Saturdays and Sundays starting from your local bike shops. So it's your local bike shop is, it's a challenging environment for local bike shops because like any business, they're really under threat from online retailers. But the local bike shop is in Western communities still like the nerve center, the community for local cycling. It's where group rides happen. It's where the conversations happen. And they are the best place to plug in. And once you're in the local club ride then you start getting introduced to this pathway that's within cycling where you know you can go and do gravel stuff you can go and do sportifs which are just for fun or you can get plugged into the racing side of it where it's a categorized system where you start out in category four then category three category two category one and then into the pro ranks and then that has its own internal categorization as well so there's a very laid out pathway and i think that's where the goal focused nature for me comes in because i literally had printed out in my diary and glued in when i was getting started like okay this is the pathway it's like 
Cat 4. How do I get from Cat 4? Okay, I need to win two or three bike races. And now I get to a Category 3 license. Now I need to win four races and I get a Category 2 license. Okay, now I need to win Category 1 races. Now I need to win an international race uh, to get a chance at a professional contract. Now, if I win this professional race, I can get onto a national team. And, you know, you have your pathway very lined out. And so you just break, break it back down then to, you know, what's the, like I said, what's the actions that I need to do today to do that? And then is it possible to compete at a high level? I suppose it's it's defining what a high level is. It's like, if you want to win the Tour de France, it's getting more difficult. The culture is changing. We're seeing 22-year-olds winning the Tour de France at the moment. Uh, for the last, this the third year in a row, we're seeing somebody under the age of 22 winning the Tour de France. So it's getting super young. But having said that, there's a big spread. One of the best riders in the world, Alejandro Valverde, is still for, he's 42 years old and he's still racing. So we're seeing this big spread in cycling that we're not getting in other sports like soccer. It's a, a sport you can sustain for a long time. And I've seen friends coming into the sport late, you know, early 30s and gone on to win national championships and, you know, become the sort of local fast guy and then sustaining that into their 40s. So it's possible to come in late and achieve a high level, but maybe to achieve the top, top level of the sport, difficult. But also your motivation changes. So uh, I'm not so much goes in. I went back two years ago for an Olympic cycle uh, with a friend. It's actually a funny story or not that funny, but interesting. A friend of mine, uh, he lost his eyesight when he was 18 and he'd be a cool guest for your podcast. Uh, Peter Ryan is his name. Uh, he lost his eyesight when he was 18 and he was uh, over in Ireland. We have a sport called hurling. It's like our native sport and outside of Ireland, this makes absolutely no sense, but it's so popular here. Like we've 95,000 people like going to the matches over here. It's like fanatical. So he played for the best hurling team in Ireland. So if you play for this team, this is like, you know, it's like playing for Man United. You're absolutely idolized. So he was playing for the best hurling team in Ireland. You know, 95,000 people at these matches. And, you know, it's bigger than the Bernabeu, our stadium over here. And then he loses his eyesight. And so he's gone from being this superstar to losing his eyesight. And he went through a really difficult decade of addiction, antisocial stuff before getting back on his feet, qualifying for the Olympics. And then coming to the end of my cycling career, I'd actually retired and then I came back. He said to me, hey, would you pilot the tandem for me? And he wanted to qualify for another Olympics. So I went back onto the front of the tandem for him, but that was back into high performance. And that's only two years ago. And I was like, I only done it because he was a friend. The high performance is, you know, it's not that much fun. It's, there's no balance. You know, it's going to Spain for four weeks for a training camp, coming home for four days for Christmas and going back to Portugal for four weeks for a training camp, coming home for two days, flying to Toronto for Worlds. It's just, it's full on. And you have to have a very big, like, why? Why am I doing this? And for me, that was my buddy to help him qualify. But like, I don't think I could have a why big enough to shelve the rest of my life. It's a young man's game for sure. Uh, when you don't have many responsibilities and you don't have many goals other than sport, I think it's uh, that's the time to pursue high performance. But maybe when you're into your 30s and you have other interests and, you know, like the podcast that I'm trying to grow, like that's where I like to put my creative energy at the moment. And when you're high performance in sport, there's not a lot of residual creative energy to push a podcast. No, and it's interesting. It's like when you see the highest performers and you see the athletes and you see everything that they gain from the lives that they lead, 
it's very easy to think, ah, you know, I wouldn't mind a life like this. And then you actually see the reality of what a life like this looks like. And most people would not exchange it for all that they receive from it. So it's very interesting that you have that perspective well, as well. And you know what's interesting in this as well? Because like, we're starting to see more about these athletes. Like if you look at yeah. Michael Phelps. So Michael Phelps is the most decorated athlete in Olympic history, more gold medals than any Olympic athlete ever. And after his last Olympics, which I think was London, he spoke openly about suicidal ideologies, being lonely, isolated, depressed. So like, is that what success looks like? Is this what we should strive for? Because any rational definition of success, it can't be that. It can't be because what makes these athletes great is also what breaks them and what isolates them. So we need to find more balance because that can't be the ideal that we're striving towards is the amount of sacrifice it takes to win that many gold medals is also what caused him to have no friend circle, to cause him to be totally isolated from his family, to have a dysfunctional relationship with food, to have an obsessive nature with training. And then when all that stops, you know, he contemplates taking his own life. Like we can't call that success. We need to do better as a collective at defining what success is, especially for kids coming into the sports. Do you think he was able to achieve that balance and still hit the heights that he did? I don't think so. No, I think that's the challenge, right? Is that we, as society, praise the highest performers, right? We want to see people at the top of their game. And I think that there's, as you mentioned, there's more that we can do. And then perhaps there's a a bit of a, I don't want to call it a healthy ignorance, but maybe a a blissful ignorance is probably the better word of what these people are having to do in order to create the type of achievements that they are. I mean, we all want to go watch, you know, the 100 meters at the Olympics. We want to watch the World Cup final. We want to watch who's getting gold at the Olympics, but we don't actually think about the sacrifices. We just applaud the merits of what they're able to achieve. And I think that that's the challenge is that if someone says, yep, we're going to strive for more balance and, you know, these people at the top of the game, they start to slow down. It's like, well, other people who are still in that mindset who are like, well, actually, I don't want balance. I just want to be at the top of my game. I'm going to take advantage of that. And so I think that whilst we have a competitive world like that, I, I don't personally know what the solution is, or I'm not sure if I've had an idea of it. Do you have any idea what a solution might be? I think the solution is like we're doing right now. It's to start the dialogue on it because for so long we have, you know, celebrated. Are you a football fan? I am, yes. Yeah, so for so long we've celebrated like Diego Maradona, Paul Gascoigne, all these, you know, generational icons. You know, over here in Ireland, we had Paul McGrath and we've celebrated them on the one hand and then we're totally dismissive of the addiction problems they have on the other hand. But it's like these addiction problems are to, like Paul McGrath spoke of getting into his car, drinking a full bottle of whiskey and driving full speed towards a brick wall to end his life. And then waking up, like obviously didn't die, woke up with like bad injuries and has to go to the hospital and be treated for it. But this is a product of the system that creates these athletes. It's a, you know, economics, they call it an externality. It's an unwanted side effect of the systems we've created to make high performance athletes. But we just want to totally, you know, we, we want to be ignorant of it but also look at it in almost patronizing terms. Or like, isn't it so sad what happened to Maradona? Isn't it so sad, Paul Gascoigne? You know, it's a tragic story. It's not sad. It's a, it's a natural consequence of the systems we've set up. It's really hard to find a solution to that. I'm really struggling to think of a way in which we could have a world in which that imbalance is eradicated without there being competition. You know, I think ultimately there's competition, there's imbalance. 
Well, I, I think if you circle back to one of our early points on it, we talked about values. And I, I had a, a psychologist on my podcast called Dr. D. Martini, and he talked about values being like compartments in a ship. So if you have, uh, say, we arbitrarily threw out, you know, family, spirituality, financial, uh, self-progress, and maybe sport as our five areas. So if you think about them as five compartments of a ship. So for me or you now, you know, not I'm assuming you're not in your 20s anymore either. I am. Oh, you're I'm still in, in your 20s? 20s. See, what yes. are you? <laughs> 27, 7, uh, it's, 28, it's very bad, soon. It's the bad light. It's the bad light. <laughs> uh, so we have those four, those five areas. So now you're maybe at a part of your life where you're starting to try and get those balanced rather than being all in on one area from chatting to you, it seems like you are anyway. But so when one of those areas starts going bad, like if your sport starts going bad, you don't say my life is bad. You say, okay, one area is going bad, but I still have four other areas to keep the ship buoyant. But if you take the Paul Gascoigne example, you take the, you know, Tony Adams, the, you know, uh, Maradona example, when they come towards the end of a career, football starts going bad. They've only one compartment in the ship. So football's going bad equals life has gone bad. bad. Yeah. And that's the problem. We're not creating rounded athletes. So it's like the systems we're building, it needs to have more balance built into them. It needs to have be creating like, 